So that's when it really clicked for me. Well, what do we what do we have here? We have the Bible, Jewish culture, and Greek mythology, Greek culture, and what do you get when you put it together? The Book of Enoch. Ultimately, when you take a look at the Book of Enoch, Church Fathers, I've got to allow Scripture to be the authority. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. It blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is a different kind of episode for me. Uh, This is kind of weird. Um, I don't have a guest today, and that's a first for me. I've never done an episode without a guest. Uh, I've always wanted to do an interview show, never really felt comfortable just delivering content. Uh, the reason for that is because um, I'm just content to just ask the questions uh, and, and get an expert um, to ask the questions to, or at least someone that's knowledgeable in, in that type of area. Um, so even though I feel knowledgeable in certain areas, I don't feel like I'm really bringing anything to the table myself that's unique or different. Um, haven't felt really passionate about anything to to get on here and just give uh, my take or anything like that. Uh, again, this is not the kind of show I, I do. However, um, this is something I really felt compelled to do, uh, almost felt an obligation, a responsibility to my listeners to do this. The reason for that is because I have covered the angelic view of the Nephilim um, extensively, I think, on this show. And uh, since coming to a different understanding um, of the Nephilim in Genesis 6, uh, I feel like, personally, I have been sort of duped in, in a way and uh, feel like I've gone down a, a road that's more of a distraction than anything else. Uh, so I'll explain a little bit uh, about what I mean by that. Um, but basically, uh, I respect my listener and I assume that you guys are a lot like me and you view the Bible as the highest authority and you are seeking truth no matter where it takes you. And for me personally, uh, when I'm looking at an issue, like a secondary issue, like the Nephilim, uh, I'll look at the best scholarship uh, on one side of the issue, and I'll try to look at the best scholarship on the other side of the issue. Um, so I first, uh, just my personal story with this, started coming across giants like in 2008, and I really wrestled with the angelic view of the Nephilim uh, and uh, had a hard time like really fully embracing it. Um, it was foreign to me, and... Uh, I wasn't fully convinced, but I think what really got me over the edge was, you know, I was listening to a lot of podcasts, um, and the archaeological evidence for giants, I think, is what kind of tipped me. Um, The Book of Enoch tipped me uh, in that favor. And then I think just consuming content from uh, from people that have a lot of knowledge in this area... um, just really convinced me of it, uh, one in particular being Michael Heiser. Uh, so he's a scholar and he's an expert. So I feel like he brought a lot of, um, credibility to the view. And so anyway, uh, I was, uh, pretty much fully on board with the angelic view, um, for, for, for quite some time. And, um, again, coming out of it, the reason why I feel responsible, uh, to do this, you know, I know for me, uh, the Nephilim were like a gateway into a lot of other weirdness. Um, and so I know 
many of you probably hold to that view. And since I have basically, in a sense, somewhat promoted that view on the show, um, I wanted to bring some balance to it. And uh, I've done, you know, I've covered it in, in a recent episode. Um, but preparing, I actually tried to find someone to bring onto the show that could share um, their view on, on this. And the reason why I'd like to do it myself is because really and truly, there's a lot of really, I mean, there's an overabundance of uh, resources you can get that's going to promote the angelic view. But when it comes to the Sethite view, um, it, it's it's kind of sparse. And when you find something that promotes the Sethite view, um, I feel like a lot of it is just surface and it doesn't actually address all the evidence we see for the angelic view. And so that's where, um, where I feel like I have the, at least the background knowledge to be able to present it, um, and, and address that evidence. So that's why I wanted to do it myself. Uh, so just so you know, I am coming at this, um, you know, educated on the angelic view. So just so you guys know kind of, um, where I'm coming from, you know, I've read Michael Heiser's work, Unseen Realm and Reversing Hermon. I've looked at L.A. Marzulli's. I've read his book, uh, Counter Moves. I've watched the entire On the Trail of the Nephilim series. Um, I've had Ryan Peterson on, uh, read both of his books, uh, Judgment of the Nephilim and The Final Nephilim. Uh, same with Dr. Laura. I've had her on, read her book. So um, I'm pretty well versed in this, but I, I, I truly find when, when you just strip it down and you look at what Scripture has to say, I don't think the angelic view holds up to to scrutiny. And, you know, for me, I'm not trying to convince anybody uh, of the Sethite view. You know, I don't, I don't care to debate. You know, one thing I love about um, my listeners is I imagine you're, you're a lot like me. You're open-minded, and so you don't mind hearing an, an, an opposite view, and you're not going to react out to that. Um, you guys are normally just awesome uh, as far as the comments, just being able to say, hey, I disagree with that. You might say, this is why I disagree or whatever. Um, but, but for the most part, I love telling others that ask me that my listeners are very agreeable. I don't have any trolls or anybody that, that's being nasty and, and, and rude in the comments. So that's pretty awesome. So, um, you know, I, I'm assuming if you're listening already, that you're at least open-minded to hearing uh, the other side of the view. And that's my goal with this. It's just to give you guys some questions and some evidence for you guys to consider and then just weigh for yourself. Um, cool. So I think I'm ready to kind of basically um, dive in with this, and we'll start just by looking at what the text actually has to say. Um, so for me, that's what really turned me. Uh, I was actually teaching through Genesis and walked through Genesis 3, the fall, Cain and Abel, and then the um, genealogies we see in chapters 4 and 5. And when we get to 6... Uh, I had to, so I, I teach uh, high school, so a lot of um, the students I have have very little exposure to the Bible. And so, you know, they're, all they know is just what we've read so far, just the first five chapters. And then so to insert the angelic view and have to basically cover it, it was, I noticed it was extremely forced and extremely awkward because there's no mention of angels, you know, outside of the cherubim that's guarding the garden, there's no mention of angels. So to insert angels uh, into the narrative, um, 
it was very unfitting, you know, and I realized how dependent the view is on things like the Book of Enoch and arguing for what, you know, maybe the early church fathers had to say. So I'm going to address that stuff uh, later, but I want to, you know, I want to anchor uh, this defense in the word, in the scripture. And because I think one, once we dig in and, and you look at it, um, I think things are pretty clear. So I will address the book of Enoch and, and the early church fathers uh, later, but I want to start just by looking at what the text says, because uh, that's really what turned me, um, is when I actually just looked at it, just bare bones. If I'd never read the Bible before and I'm reading through Genesis 6, there's there's no way I could ever come up, come up with this angelic view uh, of Genesis 6. So, First, if, if we notice, there's a, a pattern. We notice that there is a fall in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then outside of the garden in the land, there's a, a fall with Cain and Abel. And then further out in the world, we see a fall with the sons of God and the daughters of men. So the pattern is we see that sin um, is, is spreading further and further out, and as it does, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So the narrative of the flood we see overall big picture is that sin is spiraling and then it ends in a judgment um, on, on, on man for their sin. Uh, that's what seems to be pretty plain in the narrative. So to insert angels into here, um, when we have, the, again, the pattern of the garden fall, the land fall, and I would say it's the same pattern we see in the world, in another fall, but I, I don't see any reason uh, to insert angels into this. So, um, so let's start with, with the birth of Cain here. Chapter 4, so I'm going to give the context for chapter 6 and then cover it there. But if we look at chapter 4, um, chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So take note that Cain is referred to as a man. And that may sound like, okay, who cares, whatever. Um, but I want to contrast that with the birth of Seth. Verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So we have Cain, the man, and we have Seth, the son. Daughters of men, Cain, sons of God, Seth. So, Perhaps you're not convinced, but if we look at the context and we read through after chapter 4, right, we have uh, part of the judgment in chapter 3. We see that there's a distinction between the, the serpent seed, the line of the serpent, and then the line of Eve. So there's a distinction, and we see that happening starting with Adam, or sorry, with, with Cain and Abel. And then as we read through Cain's genealogy, it's very clear that we're looking at uh, a lineage that has fallen away from God. Uh, they're wicked. And that's very clear when we see uh, Lamech. He's a polygamist. He's got two wives, and he's basically bragging about having murdered a man. Um, contrast that with uh, Seth's lineage. You know, it actually starts out by saying that God had created man in his likeness, right? And this is not something that was said when we started looking at Cain's lineage. It was said when we look at Seth's lineage. And so we know that Adam is a son of God, right? God is his father. Um, and again, we see Seth referred to as a son. 
And so in chapters four and five, we have a, a, a contrast between the two lineages. And this is the context behind chapter six. So when we get to chapter six, um, all we know in the story so far is that man has fallen and we have these two distinct lineages, one that's righteous and one that's wicked. So we get to chapter six and we read, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and I'm sorry, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. So we already have here sons of God and daughters of men just in the first verse of chapter six. Um, and what we're told here is that man began to multiply. So um, the world is being populated and it's happening through these two lineages. So obviously this text begs the question, who are the sons of God? Natural way to read that is that, okay, this is, Seth's lineages, lineage. Uh, if we take a look at the daughters of men, the natural way to read that is this Cain's lineage. So it says that they took um, as their wives any they chose. Okay. Then the Lord said, so again, inserting angels in here, it's just awkward. There's no reason for it. Um, the way it's argued is people either point to an outside source like Book of um, Enoch or they'll jump over to Job and say, look, sons of God is angels. Boom, we're going to bring that back in here. But there's no reason to jump forward to a different book by a different author, different time period for the context, you know, to translate this word sons of God. We have the context right here in chapter four and five. The natural way to read that is we have sons of Seth. Anyway, um, so then it says, chapter or verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. Okay, so again, what days are we talking about? The days when men were multiplying, going back to verse 1. Um, and it says the Nephilim were there. Right? So it, it doesn't say how the Nephilim were, how they came about. It just says they were there, and, and they were also afterward. Um and then uh, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So again, this is saying the Nephilim were there. When were they there? Whenever we had the sons of God and the daughters of man um, having children populating uh, the earth. And it says, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So who are these? The children that were born to the daughters of men and the sons of God. So here... It's telling us who the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men are. They're mighty men, men of renown. So it actually states that they're they're men. It doesn't say anything about hybrids. Uh, it doesn't say anything about half angel, half human. Um, nor does it actually call them Nephilim. So it talks about Nephilim before. Then it says they, they, they had children, and it refers to the children as mighty men. Okay, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Again, we're talking about men here. We're not talking about um, angels or, or, or hybrids. So if this was a story about angels, it would be talking about the fall of angels, right? It would be talking about uh, hybrids and these new race of people, half human, half angels, if that's what was going on. But it only mentions men here. Verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. doesn't say anything about the angels and what they did, 
right? Because if this is the sin of the angels, why are we talking about man here, right? He's regretting what, what man had done. And it grieved him uh, to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So again, the judgment here is on man. It doesn't say I'm blotting out this abomination that's been created, this these hybrids that have taken over. It just says man. So again, if this was if the story, the narrative here was that angels came down and created a hybrid race, it, it would say that and it would be clear. Um, but what we're seeing is the narrative continuing from Genesis 3 from the sin of Adam and Eve, carried down to Cain and Abel, and now it's carrying down to their lineage, and and, and that's it. Um, of course, and then we get the, the narrative of, of the flood and, and the building uh, of the ark. So, other thing I want to address here is, is Noah is referred to, it says, verse 9, he was a righteous man, blameless man in his generation, and he walked with God. What the angelic view does is it, it takes Noah, who very is very clearly contrasted with the wickedness that's going on here in the previous verses as a righteous man, and it's saying, well, the reason why Noah is picked here is not because he's like perfect and, and, and righteous and good. No, it's because he has untainted uh, genes, and they use um, that word um, for, for perfect, uh, here it says blameless, um, and they compare that to how it's used referring to a lamb that's been sacrificed. Again, context here, it's sandwiched between righteous man and he walked with God. So I think it's pretty clear um, that Noah's being contrasted with all the sin that's going on, that grieved the Lord, that we just talked about in the previous verses. Um, so I, I don't think it has anything to do with genetics here. Um, and also, the reason why I don't believe that is because that argument really falls flat when we look at the fact that there, Noah's not the only one who's perfect or blameless, like untainted GNA, because he, he married a wife, and he would have, she would have had to have also been perfect, right? Um, they had three sons. They had three wives. So we're looking at Noah and at least four other women that would have had to have been completely untainted uh, as well. So you got to think about the narrative of well, everyone has been tainted. The DNA is completely corrupted. It's set for, for Noah. Um, it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny when we take a look at the fact that we got to have wives for, for these four men. Um, so again, you got to think about how where are these where are these wives coming from, right? For them to be untainted, uh, so it just doesn't it doesn't fit. Um, all right, and then I think, yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a wrap for for that. So the um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I, I need to cover there. Um, so yeah, I, I do want to talk about how. If we look at this narrative from the viewpoint that this is about genealogy, um, it doesn't work. And I'll tell you why it doesn't work. It doesn't work because if that is the judgment that's taking place, is to preserve 
um, the DNA so that the Messiah can be born, then God fails. And the reason for that is because the only way to explain how we have uh, the same thing happening after the flood, um, there's really only three ways. Either someone on that boat had Nephilim DNA, and then in that case, you know, they outwitted God. You know, what kind of a judgment is this when God is saving people in a boat from tainted DNA when they had the tainted DNA on the boat? That makes no sense. So that doesn't, that doesn't work. Um, it works, but again, God's judgment completely fails. Uh, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, okay, the other is we have a second incursion. Also doesn't make any sense. Why are we judging um, the world because their DNA is tainted when the same thing can happen again right on the other side of the flood? Again, in that case, God fails. The other scenario, uh, the Nephilim duck down uh, into the earth in caves or hop in the UFOs or whatever and somehow uh, escape the judgment. Again, God fails. So when we make it about this, it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Um, and so that's something that's really never sat well with me. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'll let you do with what you will, uh, with, with that. All right. So I think that's my walk through, uh, through the scripture. Next, I want to address the book of Enoch. Um, what really started to turn me on the book of Enoch. Uh, so when I first got into this, it, it was really like, a lot of red flags. Um, when you read it, it does not read like Scripture. It's very obvious why it's not a part of Scripture. It contradicts Scripture. Uh, there's a, an obsession and glorification of angels here. Uh, the narrative changes, um, and there's just, just outright contradictions. Um, part of me thought, man, well, the book's there, right? It is written. There is an account, so there has to be some truth to it. So even if it's not whole truth, right, even if it's not canon— uh, I can at least accept the overall narrative that this actually happened, and this book is evidence of that. And so that's kind of the view I've always hold on it, all right? It's not scripture, however, um, it's there, right? When my mind started to really change on this is when I was, um, you know, reading several books, and everyone was dating the book of Enoch based on the language to... 300 BC. That changes everything. Because in my mind, I'm looking at the book of Enoch and I'm thinking this was written by Enoch during that time, right? Pre-flood. If it's written in 300 BC, then this is the time when Greece was the predominant culture of the day. So you got to see as Greece takes over as the third beast uh, in Israel, right, for the Jews, they're Hellenizing um, that culture. And when you read the book of Enoch, it sounds like Greek mythology. So that's when it really clicked for me. Well, what do we, what do we have here? We have the Bible, Jewish culture, and Greek mythology, Greek culture, and what do you get when you put it together? The book of Enoch. And so, for me, that's when it was like, ah, I don't know. I just don't know about this book of Enoch anymore because that uh, changes everything. Uh, 
anyway, so again, I'll, I'll let you do with what you want with that, but I'll say this. If you know that the book of Enoch has blatant contradictions to the Bible, it's pseudepographical at best. Why would we take one portion of that and allow that to determine how we are interpreting Scripture? Because for me, if there, if you take Book of Enoch off the table, right, it becomes extremely difficult to prove this view. Extremely difficult. And you look at the scholars, um, the books that you read, they rely heavily on the Book of Enoch. Um, so, there you go. That's my thoughts on the Book of Enoch, and... Uh, I'll address the early church fathers. That's another argument you hear over and over again. Well, this, all the early church fathers believe this. And, um, man, that was really something that uh, was very convincing, right? It gives a lot of credibility. You say, oh, wow, well, this is legit. It's not some weird thing. Um, this, there was a consensus. Uh, and, uh, you know, these scholars were, were a lot closer to Christ right, than I was, you know, the, the time of Christ, right? Um, and this is what they all believe, Right. More I've matured and realized over the course of church history, doctrine, uh, we will have a, a better understanding of doctrine and theology as the church grows and progresses throughout history. And we should know more now about the Bible as a church than we did with the early church fathers. And that's really, I feel like, a weakness, right? To say, well, this is what the early church fathers believed in. We can't go back hundreds, thousands of years uh, and say, well, I guess hundreds of years, and, and say, well, this is what the early church fathers believed in. Therefore, it must be legit. Um, you know, ultimately, when you take a look at the book Enoch, church fathers, I've got to allow scripture to be the authority. And that's why I started out by just reading the text and walking us through it. Um, third thing I want to address is physically, right? I've had some guests on where I pressed them on this one. I'm not satisfied with with this. Again, if this is true, it's true. So, um, that means we have to take this to its, its, its logical conclusion. And physically, we have an issue here. How is it that angels um, are able to take on physicality, right? I know we see that uh, with Abraham and the two angels um, that went to Sodom and Gomorrah. I get that. Um, they didn't defect, though, right? These aren't fallen angels, um, even if they are able to take physicality, right? And let's say, and it, also it wasn't permanent, right? For, for these angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't just like leave for good. Um, if they are able to defect, take on physicality, how are we to know that they actually have seed and have the ability to impregnate a woman, right? Why would they have that when Jesus said that, that angels don't marry, right? If they don't marry, and I imagine they're not having sex. So, how is it possible for an angel to impregnate a female? Let's just say that they do, right? Let's say that they have seed. Don't see, don't see any reason for it, but let's say they do. Um, how is it that a woman is able to carry an angel's child? Let's say that she does. Um, then we're, you know, again, why, why is it giantism, right? And, and first, I meant to say this at the very beginning. I'm not denying giants. Right, I see these as two separate issues. Right, um, so there are giants. I do believe in giants. Um, however, um, I'm not convinced that what we see here in Genesis six is angels uh, procreating 
with women. Just want to make that clear. I'm not denying giants. Um, but if these giants are, are born, then how do they go on to procreate, right? Is a giant able to make a baby with a regular-sized woman? Physically, how does that work? Do we have female giants that are impregnated by a normal-sized man? Physically, how does that work? So the only way I really see it is if you have a giant male and a giant female, and are they able to procreate, right? Even if they are, can a woman carry a giant child, right? So it becomes a real issue, and then when you take it further, now you have a life that's created. How is it um, that God gives life, right? A soul and a spirit, and now we have a hybrid so what do we do with the soul and spirit of this hybrid? Is it a human, half-human soul that's just damned, right? Because it's half-fallen angel? Or is it a fallen angel that can be redeemed? You see what I'm saying? So theologically, we have some real issues when, when, we, when we take a look at, look at this from that point. Um... And the last thing I want to say is, um, you know, I don't want to cover the conquest uh, wholly, but I'll, I'll just say when we look at the conquest, you know, this this is another thing that why I embrace this view because it makes me feel real good about the flood because God's not some big baddie out there that's just punish, punishing people for being wicked or, or sinful. Um, he's he's eliminating these hybrids and that that that, that, that eased the cushion on that one. Same thing for, for the uh, uh, the conquest. Right, they're not just going in there killing people because uh, they're wicked. It's uh, the elimination of the hybrids. Right? Um, again, that's completely foreign from the text. We read why God sent the flood, the wickedness of, of man. Right? And when it comes to the conquest, again, if this was about eliminating hybrids, um, it would it would just say it plainly in the text. It, it, we don't ever get that narrative of we have to go in there and destroy the hybrids. And, uh, you know, this is the clincher for me. Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's a Canaanite. So what do you do with that? And it wasn't just Rahab. Um, it was her entire family that was saved. And they intermarried. So what do you do with that? Right? If the Canaanites, if they're killing men, women, and children, right? Because they all have the tainted DNA. We've got to wipe them all out. Every single last one of them. And what do you do with Rahab? So, again, these are thoughts uh, for you to ponder, think about, um, and and come to your own conclusions on. Let me make sure I'm not missing anything that I wanted to say, and then uh, I'll I'll let it I'll let it be. But again, I just I just felt compelled to do this because me personally, um, like I said, a lot of the times. Uh, I won't embrace a view just because uh, there's something about it that just doesn't make sense, or I'll, I'll hold on to a view because um, no one's really debunked it um, in a way that's satisfactory. So I just wanted to present it and let you guys do your own wrestling. Um, again, thank you so much. This is kind of weird for me because I don't normally do this sort of thing. Um, I forgot to say, let's get weird. So we got weird. Uh, but uh, 
it's weird that I feel weird for not believing in the angelic view. So in, in this sort of circle, it's that that's become the weird is now normal. Um, and the normal is now weird. Uh, okay. I think that's it guys. Um, so thank you so much, uh, for listening and, uh, yeah, feel free to give me feedback. But again, I'm, I'm not uh, looking to debate or anything like that. Just want to give you something to consider. Okay, so I actually did forget something. If you're interested in reading more about this, check out the show notes, uh, the show description. I'm going to put some links to some articles in there for you guys to check out. All right, so like, subscribe, all that good stuff, share. Uh, and with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.